Good morning, church. Another beautiful, beautiful day here on the mountain. Uh, This morning, we are going to continue on in our series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, As a church, we like to go through kind of book by book, uh, chapter by chapter, uh, through the entire Bible. And uh, if you'll just stick around for about 20 years, we'll do just that, okay? Um, But this morning, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, and we are picking up at verse 17. It's found on page 919 of the Bibles provided under the seats. If you are able and, and willing, would you stand with me here for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth as in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we find ourselves again this morning as hungry, needy beggars asking for your food, the bread of life that comes from your word. We pray as the the song sings that you would speak, O Lord, and receive to receive the food of your holy word, that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us and shape and fashion us in your likeness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting if you think about Hollywood, along with its red carpet runways, just how strange and interesting they really are. Um, I think we are so accustomed to kind of flipping on the TV and watching these things that it's just old hat to us. But if life from outer space came in and watched what we do, I think that they would be scratching their heads. They would see these people who've 
as a career, pretended to be other people in these make-believe stories. And they would see that they felt that they had done such a good job at pretending to be someone else that they must now congratulate themselves and pat themselves on the back as they walk down these red carpet runways to, I don't know, the, the Emmys or the Golden Globe. You, you, you pick your favorite version of that. But as they walk down these runways, they communicate something to everybody. The whole world's watching in and they communicate something, don't they? With their walk, And with their wardrobe that they have on, they're communicating to everybody watching, can't you see that I've done such a good job? Can't you see that I um, have done really well for myself, that I'm very um, smart and with my white teeth and smile? Can't you tell I'm happy and that my life's put together and that I'm very successful and wealthy and well-to-do all by the way that they walk and pose and, and the wardrobe they wear? And don't you just wish that you were one of them? (laughs) Well, there's a walk and there's a wardrobe to be worn at these events. If we could think of this as a metaphor, so too, there's a Christian walk to be walked. And so too, there's a Christian wardrobe to put on. And if we're honest, I think the world is watching us too in our walk with our wardrobe on. Yet the Christian walk is rather different from the way the Hollywood walks. In fact, Paul will actually make it clear this morning that the Christian is to walk different from the way Hollywood walks because Hollywood is an egocentric, self-based approach and it's actually in opposition to the gospel. I'm not saying that it's wrong to watch a movie. I'm not saying it's wrong to be an actor. I'm just saying the machine as a whole is in opposition to the gospel. This is why he says here in verse... uh, 17 of, or verse 1 rather, of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. The walk then that we walk is unique. And Ephesians has been a book that is going to be built around walking. We've seen this theme of walking several times in it. And it, and even as it's calling us to walk in a particular manner, it's a book that began with our head in the clouds. This, these amazing statements from Paul right on the outset in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but especially one where he began by saying, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we rejoice with with Paul and God's overwhelming plan of redemption, assuring that we would be his people, not just we generically, that you would be his people. And that through this plan, Paul makes it clear that God is not only saving your heart and your mind and your soul, he's actively doing the work of saving your hands and your feet as well. So that while we have our head in the clouds, as it were, because of Ephesians 1, for example, we also at the same time as Christians, we must do the balance of keeping our feet on the ground and walking in a particular way. For God's concerned about our doctrine and what you believe, but he's also concerned about how you walk in light of what you believe. And this is where we're at here in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Now, if you could picture a a dead man, totally dead, in the casket, and then He is called to rise up to life. That would be amazing. 
It would be a travesty, though, if the man who has risen from out of the casket and began to walk a, a life began to walk off a cliff. That's not the picture for the Christian. We are called to get up and walk, but to walk in a particular direction that doesn't bring us right back to death. And so we walk now towards Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. And, and it's the walk that we're walking in as we get closer to Jesus, we actually become more like our Savior. We become more like the one we are following, our Lord. And Paul, as we continue forward, concluding in chapter 4 here this morning, he will speak with more clarity. And this is what I hope we catch. What does that walk look like? And that's where we're going to come to. And so our outline for this morning is in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 4, we will see a walk and a wardrobe. And then because I'm horribly uncreative, that's not even the right word, that's not even a creative way of saying that, but because I'm uncreative, the second part will be also a walk and a wardrobe, in which we'll look at verses 22 through chapter 5, verse 2. So walk and a wardrobe, and then a walk and a wardrobe. And the trick will be for you to figure out the difference between these two walks and wardrobes. So first, a walk and a wardrobe, where we've picked up here at verse 17 of chapter 4, where Paul began to say, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, there's the word, as the Gentiles do, and the futility of their minds. And here it's very clear that Paul wants us to see that his communicating uh, and to us and commanding us to walk is not coming up out of his own ideas. This comes from the Lord. The authority with which Paul speaks comes from above. This isn't his opinion, this isn't his idea. And, it, and it's interesting because you, you probably are seeing this too in Ephesians. He's saying, do not walk as the Gentiles walk. And recall, the church of Ephesus was mostly made up of Gentiles from what we know. And so in a, in a weird, strange twist, he's saying, don't walk, you gen- you Gentiles, don't walk like Gentiles walk. And you're going, oh, wait a second, hold on. It, it, in our common vernacular, because the word Gentiles comes from the word ethnos, meaning nations, I, I think a, a way we might phrase this in, in our modern day tongue would be to say, don't walk as the world walks. Now, if I told you, don't walk as the world walks, you'd understand. Even though you're in the world, you're part of the world, the world's around you, and in some sense, from a perspective, they would, we would say we are part of the world. We're to not walk in the way the world generally walks, the way Hollywood functions, as it were, if that's helpful for you. Because Christians have different motivations. We have different underlying actions and outcomes in our way of life because something is driving us and we are living and prioritizing our life in different ways from our neighbors or from our coworkers or our friends or our family who don't know Jesus. And so in verses 18 through 19, Paul, he begins to show what the Gentiles or the world's way of futility, that's a key word here, futility is. It's a way of living that is vain. It is pointless. It is worthless. Paul elsewhere, thinking of Romans chapter 1, he makes it clear that regarding these unbelieving Gentiles, he says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but rather became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The grim picture 
is that they are not just simply neutral or indifferent against God. The, the picture that God wants you to see, and Paul wants you to see here, is that man without Christ, it's not as if they're just neutrally sitting by and like, nah, maybe I could take. No, even in their professed neutrality, they are actively against and opposing their Lord. The picture is inwardly and outwardly they are rebellious. And so, if you are not yet a Christian here this morning and you're with us, I hope that you will see that this passage speaks to you and actually it's speaking about you in some sense. And I'm praying that this morning that you will come to see that the end of your story, the, be, the way that your walk and your wardrobe began does not need to be the way that your walk and your wardrobe will end. Paul wants you to see this. The callousness Paul is speaking about here means that mankind has lost the ability, as it were, to blush. They have become desensitized to sin, and therefore they are hardened. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, the hardening of the Gentile heart is like this. He says, it's the progressive inability of your conscience to convict you of wrongdoing. Do you see that? So that the world's way is no longer what should convict us, convicts us. It is now okay. And progressively that ball continues, that snowball grows and grows, doesn't it? This is how the world grows further and further away from our good God. Particularly in the realm of two categories in which Paul hits on here, which are sensuality and impurity. And I was trying to parse these out. I wanted something brilliant to say about these, <laughs> and, and I was looking at sensuality and greed and impurity, and truly, I, I recognized as I was studying this, it's, a, it's an impurity that is sought with greed. So in other words, greed is not one of those things, it's, it's an impurity that's greedily sought, if you will. So you really only end up with these two categories, which are sensuality and impurity, and and I, and I wanted to somehow come, come and give you some sort of aha moment and saying, think of sensuality this way, think of impurity this way. And yet the more I tried, the more I realized, I think Paul is using these overlapping terms to, 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 to really characterize one thing. It's, it's this, this idea of sensuality and which is oftentimes in connection with various forms of sexual immorality, but also a way of living and a manner of living in which is idolatrous living. It probably bears repeating at this moment, and, and, and if you haven't heard this, key in on this, that sexual immorality is any sexual activity that is outside the bounds of a married man and woman together. And so I think while we ought to view this sensuality and impurity, including that, I, it's also broader than that because there's other uses of this word of these words that like I say sweep up the the issue of idolatry. And I think this is why Hollywood might represent to us or be helpful for our purposes this morning because it it, it becomes a supreme example of what we might call the par excellence of of this idea of sensual immorality or impurity which includes sexual living, but extends beyond that as well. And therefore, one of the marks of a genuine Christian who repents from sinful forms of sexual living and desires to honor God with his or her body, another mark of, of a person who is pursuing Jesus is making steps towards loving Christ more than they love the things of this earth. They're, they're taking in this walk with this new wardrobe. They're beginning to love Christ more than they love their sin. 
One commentator put it that the pagan way of life was characterized by an insatiable desire to participate in more and more forms of immorality. Ultimately, it becomes a vicious cycle and circle because new perversions must be sought to replace the old. So in other words, much like we can think of, you know, we, we've seen and some of us even experienced addiction where, you know, what you began with is not where you keep going because you must always like add on a bit more, a bit more until this, until it becomes a monster and overtakes your life. And, and so the, the picture then is of this idolatrous impurity and sensuality is it must grow and grow in one's life. It's never, never enough. There must always be more. And then uniquely, Paul says that, wait, wait, that, that's, that's, not, that's not how you learned Christ. He says, no, that's not how you learned Christ. And he, he says, that's not how you, that's not how you, uh, the, way, the way he phrases it, it's not how you learned about Christ. He says, that's not how you learned Christ. I, th- I thought that was interesting because it makes it clear that just like you begin to know a spouse in particular, and you, you begin to say, I know this person. I've learned this person, as it were. And I think in a similar way, that's how Paul is speaking about our knowing and coming to know him in such a way we've learned Christ. Paul fleshes this out by saying, his assumption and confidence is that they had indeed heard about Christ, which assumes that they were taught his ways. So recall from, from last week, I brought up this idea of gifts and gifts to the church. And, and, I, and I said that th- these gifts to the church actually are, were not necessarily spiritual gifts, but were people given to the church, the, the elders and the evangelists and the shepherds, the apostles and prophets, right? And someone um, wisely reached out to me and said, now, Thomas, I, I think you may have not been clear here, to which I said, yeah, you're, you're right, I I wasn't making a great distinction. I was trying to emphasize where Paul was at, saying that these were gifts given to the church, these these men and women as gifts to the church, but also that doesn't negate the fact that Christ, as he as He has called us, and the Spirit is indwelling us, that we've all been given spiritual gifts. If you are a Christian, you have been gifted by the Spirit to serve in particular ways which also do the role of building up the body. There's another time where we should do perhaps just a a series on the gifts and look at that together. But I just wanted to make sure that that was clear as a sidebar. Here then in verses 22 through 24, Paul makes it known that there are three areas that Christians have been taught. First, pertaining to the taking off of the old self. Romans 13, we, we read something similar where we are to be doing this taking off. In other words, if you have these this wardrobe on that's in line with Hollywood's ways, take that off and put on the new wardrobe. In Romans 13, we read, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk. See also this putting on and in, in, in connection with walking. Let us walk properly as the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in the quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We see these desires of the old sinful man still linger, even though we have been Christians. We can think, man, once I become a Christian, if I had no sin, no struggles, that would be great. And the truth is that day is coming. I just want you to know, church, that day is coming. Those sin struggles will be gone. 
But we live right now as strangers and aliens waiting for that day. And meanwhile, there is an active role in which Paul is getting at that we play in, it's pictured in us taking off these filthy clothes. You know, after a long, hard day's worth of work, you take off these clothes and you put fresh ones on. It's a, it's a great picture. And it's what is supposed to happen as we are renewed by the Spirit of God. And the verb to be renewed here is, interestingly, in the passive. It is, you go do this, and passively, this is happening to you. Um, Benjamin Merkel puts it like this, believers must yield themselves to God so that he will renew their inner person. And so this is much in line with what Paul says elsewhere, that as you do the work of the Lord unto salvation, you see that it's God's working in and through you to do all of this. This is pictured by us putting on the new self. So not only are we to take off the old sinful ways, the dirty clothes, but we're to put on the divine wardrobe, just like you might put on a brand new shirt. See verse 24 here where he says, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, while many Christians struggle with a lack of understanding that it is, we, we, we should neither expect sinless perfection on this side of heaven, nor should we succumb to remaining in the old ways, the old clothes, the old walk. Um, we, we should not, on one hand, expect that uh, sin will be completely done away with in our life. And nor, on the other hand, should we try to, try to live in such a way uh, thinking that we um, can just remain in sin and it's not worth the struggle and try. Paul does not communicate either of those, and both of those will be wrong-headed. Rather, we recognize as Christians, we live in the tension of the already and not yet. The Christ's kingdom is already, and his kingdom is not yet. We are saved already, and at the same time, not yet fully. We are new creations in Christ, and yet, as Hebrews says, sin clings so closely to us. We can re- what we can rejoice in now is that while prior to Christ, we were indeed stuck with clothes of unrighteousness. Now with our divine wardrobe, we have a real hope and way of living that honors and pleases our Lord. And where we fail, the loving arms of Christ are wide open to those who repent so that we walk down the runway with our godly wardrobe on. We will be seen by the world and they can indeed recognize that we are living with different motivations and purpose. This is why... Discipleship is, I think, so key for our church. If we want to continue to grow, we need each other to walk down that road together. Whether it's in Bible studies or small groups, I mean, the the role of us coming alongside one another to help us put on these new clothes and say, brother, let me pray with you so that these old clothes won't get put back on, but rather that you would remain in these new clothes. Christ has given you. This is key for us. And then we begin to say, okay, this... Thomas, if you paused here, this would just be much ado about nothing. Can you please help me see what this actually looks like? Help me see what it looks like to walk with this new wardrobe on. What does it look like if a Christian is to put on the new self? What would it look like? It's right here. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here we have moved from the old walk in the, in the old wardrobe to this new walk and this new wardrobe. I'm hoping that you caught the bookends here. Verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Then down, and this is why we concluded at chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see how crisp and clear that is? Difficult for even Christians to do, but not outside the bounds of possibility. Here we've been given in this last part of chapter 4, the beginning of 5, 13 imperatives. 13, go do this. Live this way. Don't live that way. Live this way. And last week, I I asked you about some of your next steps. I asked you, I said, what would the next step for you to walk in maturity of Christ? What would that look like for you? And I suggested several ways. Here, I think this pushes you also to consider what are the next steps for you to walk in Christ? But particularly, rather than thinking of it in forms of discipleship or theology or doctrine or other things to grow in, it's particularly character pieces that we are to be sanctified, areas where we need to grow in in sanctification. And I wonder if many Christians, when they become Christians, they subtly believe that their former issues with lying and stealing and speech and anger just seemingly disappear. You know, if that was the case, I don't think Paul would need to write this to us, reminding us to live this particular way. I think C.S. Lewis, I think C.S. Lewis, where he speaks about rats in the basement is helpful for us to, to, to think about here. He, he says, you know what? We as Christians, we can all still struggle with sin. And some of us are really good at just hiding it from ourselves. He says, all of us have rats in the basement. Now, when you're prior to Christ, the rats are everywhere. But then once you come to Christ, we're really good about kind of making sure those rats stay down there. And if we have to go down into the basement, we we flick on the light before we go down and we come tromping down the stairs really loud so all of our rats begin to to hide out and and we don't see them. And so C.S. Lewis, he says, it's really when, when certain things happen in our life, we realize, oh, when tragedy strikes you, when sorrow, grief, when... Um, a major accident happens, that's when all of a sudden the lights are flicked on quickly, too quickly for the rats to hide. And it's when you realize, oh, I still struggle with anger. Oh, I still struggle with lying. I still struggle with wanting what doesn't belong to me. And, and, and then as Christians, we begin to say, okay, I desire to still put these rats to death. I still desire to put these sins to death. Um, how is it that I'm, I'm going to do this? You know, how is it that this will come about? 
you, you all know, and, it, and, and, and it's very clear for us when we have anger, when we're driving our car, or we're sharing with each other what's going on in our lives, and we kind of slip towards gossip, or when we're not fully honest on our taxes, or we're working in the workplace, and we can kind of you know steal time from the workplace by not really doing a hard job where we're at. We, we know that each one of these kind of pricks each one of us, and there's something that's calling us to walk differently than from the Gentiles, from the world, from Hollywood, if you will. So how do we tackle this? How do we deal with this? Let me walk with you through an example that might be helpful. As Christians, we must not lie. It's simple. We must not lie. Uh, If we lie, we're not really being true and honest to who we are, our new creation in Christ. We're not representing our Lord. And yet, if we have the crust of our outer sin that says, do not lie, and you just say, this week I'm going to try a little bit better about being honest in every circumstance and situation, well, that's great for a week, but honestly, it misses the undergirding reason. Why do you lie? Why is it that you struggle at times to tell the truth, even as a Christian? Why is it sometimes the lights get flicked on and the rats are there scurrying to the hole? Well, Tim Keller has shared an excellent illustration that helps get to the very heart of this, where he says he and his wife, they lie for different reasons. Um, He says, at first you just think lying is the problem, but he realizes there was something that was fueling their lying. He says, you know, the phone will ring and I'm sitting there and I answer the phone and someone says, now, Tim, hey, that report, I still need it from you. Would you get that report to me? And he says, oh, yeah, 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 I, I was working on that. I was just about to hit, hit, the, hit the send button here. Uh, give, give me a few minutes, and I'll go ahead and get that report over to you. And then he hangs up the phone. And Kathy, his wife, would turn and say, you weren't working on that report. You weren't even beginning to start on that. He goes, yeah, but I, didn't, I, I want this person's approval. I didn't want them to think I didn't care about what they cared about. And so I fudged the truth, as it were, to make them... Th- you know, to keep their approval. I wanted them to approve of me. A little while later, the phone rings again and Kathy answers it. Hey, Kathy, there's an event going on down at the church that I could really use your help for. Could you, could you help me out with, with this upcoming event? And Kathy, oh, well, let me see on my calendar here. I have this, uh, this wedding rehearsal that I really need to be at. And so I'm so sorry. I'm busy and I, I can't go to, I can't go to that event that you needed me for. Hangs up the phone and Tim then looks and says, you don't have to be at that event or at that wedding rehearsal. That's not the case. You know that you don't have to. In fact, you told me that you're planning on not going anyway and you're freed up. What's going on there? She says, well, I, I did not want to be inconvenienced. I didn't want to have to sacrifice any of my time. It's my time that belongs to me and I didn't want to have to give it up. So he said, in this moment, he realized we're, we're both lying, but for completely different underlying reasons of why we lie. And he began to reflect on what is it that's undergirding this that needs to get at the heart is that in Tim's case, he needed to realize that he, in Christ Jesus, so has the approval of his heavenly father, that his, his, that his Lord so loves him and approves of him just where he's at. That he, that he can be brutally honest with people because he can lose a little bit of favor with man, knowing he has the overwhelming approval of God himself, so that it, he does not need to worry about what man thinks of him. And Kathy, 
Kathy begins to reflect and say, my Lord Jesus so sacrificed and gave up his life for mine. He gave it all. He didn't just bleed out 10%. He bled it all out for me so that therefore I can begin to be inconvenienced and sacrifice my time to serve those where I'm needed and where I'm actually able to to serve. And you see, here's where the gospel of Jesus actually gives us the resources that we need to live in a new manner, with new clothes and a new walk. Not just merely legalistically trying to fix the problem, but get to the heart problem and see how Jesus blows up this issue that we have. Let me give you another example for myself. Um, I read this passage and it says we should be working with honest hands. And I think, okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll try hard with that. And then it says that we may see someone in need and be able to share with those in need. And what I can do is I can say, oh, now I see the need over here. But then I say, I've got my savings account over here and I could, and maybe I should give some to help this person over here. But if I do, I could be putting myself at risk. If I give money over here and then I need that money later to help my own self, I, 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 something could happen with me. And, and I begin to say, oh, in security, I need to protect oneself and not care for those in need. And there's where the gospel comes in and says, the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord promises in that when he saves me, he's going to do everything that is needed to carry me safely into his kingdom. Therefore, if I give out of my abundance to someone in need, how, why should I dare worry that God then is going to smite me and somehow make sure I end up in the pit homeless and, you know, no. Do you see how I'm not trusting the fullness of the gospel of God to save me in all the manner that he's called me to walk? So friends, only Christianity gives you these kinds of resources to live in a way that is truly a new walk, with a new wardrobe, with whole new motivations underlying this. I think many people read these sorts of lists, don't they? I sometimes read these lists and I subtly in my mind begin to think this. I say, ah, this seems like all the other world religions. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, and if you do, God's going to get you. And there's that subtle temptation to read these things in that manner, but Christianity is giving me something completely different. If your assumption is don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, and if you do, God's going to get you, well, yeah, that is all the world's religions. That is what the world will tell us. But Christianity gives us something dramatically different, and it's right here in our text. Christianity does not give us cold, dead legalism. All of this call, every one of of this call is embedded in gospel good news. Look at For example, here in this new walk that we're supposed to have, go back to chapter 4, verse 25, where he says that we are united in Christ. He says, walk this way, you're united in Christ. Christian, that's good news. He says in verse 30 that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Christian, as you do this work and you're sealed by Jesus and by his Spirit, that's good news. He says in verse 32, you're forgiven. That is good news. Beloved children, in chapter 5, verse 1, you've been adopted. How can you not, by 
under this new heavenly father you have, live in his kingdom for his glory in a way that honors him with the new walk. And all of this comes full circle in chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, we are loved by Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says that God loves us because, or we love God because he first loved us. It says so clearly, the reason that we're called to go love others is not so that we can earn God's love. It says that God has radically loved you and that trickles all the way downhill so that now you and I, we love others and in return love our Lord because we've been overwhelmingly loved by God himself. Do you know any other Christian, uh, do you know any other worldview that compares with the Christian worldview? With the grace that we have, this grace that calls us to walk in grace even as we've received a tremendous grace from God. I think the motivation to, to love is the fact that you've been tremendously loved in Jesus. We love and we walk in sacrifice rather than in selfish greed and impurity for our loving God has walked in love and sacrifice for us. Friends, when Jesus could have saved his own skin, he gave it up. When he could have come down off the cross, he stayed. When in complete anger, he could have snapped his finger and the soldiers and the Jewish leaders would have fell down dead. He said, Father, forgive them. When Abel, and, and as often as he could, Jesus spoke building others up around him, speaking words of grace to them, from the woman at the well, to the lepers, to the blind, to the outcast. His dying breath was him being separated from God, his heavenly Father, so that you and I will never have to be. He bore your sin. He bore your curse to purchase you and release you from hell. Every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, we live. As we sang earlier, listen to these words. All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, our sin, and shame. Who lived to die, who died to rise. The all-sufficient sacrifice. Have you ever met someone so loving and truthful and sacrificial and amazing as Jesus? Clay, I'm wondering, could, could we sing that again? I'll praise to him. Could we close with, by singing this, these beautiful words? And because it goes on and says, whose power imparts, and much in line with what we're seeing right here, his power imparts us to live and walk in a particular manner by his grace. So Christian, don't you see that we have all the reasons necessary to go on in a new walk with new clothes that reflect our Lord, that bring him glory? And yes, even as we're walking down the walk and the path that we have with the wardrobe we have on, don't forget, friends, the world is watching us too. And they're seeing a whole new way of living with a new walk and a divine wardrobe. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray in line with the words of Augustine that you will command what you will, but that you will also will what you command. Would you, Father, give us by your spirit a heart that is transformed so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, the, the moment that we put you on and we ask by your power 
to free us from the love of sin. Would you do that work even on the spot in this moment we ask? In Jesus' name, amen.